right? We're launching in 2024, mm -hmm. and um, and it'll be about a six-year cruise, right? So the flybys of Mars and and Earth happen in 20, 2025 and 2026, respectively, um, and then we arrive at Jupiter in late uh, 2030. So we'll have some time to, to think a little bit, do a little more research, uh, which is important because there's a lot more we want, need to understand in terms of fundamental data related to Europa. Um, so then the, the actual, after arrival of Jupiter, there's about a six month period of getting into orbit uh, for the main science flybys of Europa. So we'll begin our science operations in 2031. Welcome. AstroTalk UK is a not-for-profit podcast on astronomy, science, and spaceflight. Launched in 2008, it's produced by me, Guru Beer Singh, a writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education, but frankly, it allows me to meet fascinating people doing interesting things. It's primarily for my own education, and I share it as a free educational resource. No ads, no subscriptions, and you don't need to log in. For more, see the About page on astrotalkuk.org. Episode 108, NASA's Europa Clipper mission. The Europa Clipper mission, due for launch in 2024, will arrive and orbit Jupiter in 2030. The third spacecraft to do so after Galileo in 1995 and Juno in 2016. The Pioneer and Voyager missions were flybys. The primary objective, as the mission name suggests, is the investigation of Jupiter's moon Europa. Called Europa Clipper after the 19th century merchant ships that shuttled between ports at the high speed then available. Europa Clipper will orbit Jupiter, not Europa. This is one of Jupiter's moons that shows strong evidence of a subsurface water ocean. During its four-year mission lifetime, it will fly by Europa dozens of times, looking for conditions suitable for life. Dr. Stephen Vance talks about the mission's goals and current state of readiness. This was recorded in Athens during COSPAR 2022. Dr. Stephen Vance, um, you're an astrobiologist and a geophysicist studying the mechanics of icy ocean worlds. I heard about the Europa Clipper program a long time ago when it first came out. We were probably at high school at the time. <laughs> Been a long time in the making. What's the current state of play with the Europa Clipper mission? Yeah, uh, I'm really excited that the Europa Clipper mission uh, is nearing completion of its spacecraft instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a tour designed to explore uh, Europa and we're excited to be launching in 2024. Now, it's been a long time in the making. Uh, when was it first uh, on, the, on, the, on the design? Well, the concept, even with the name Europa Clipper, I think can be found in writing in 1999. <laughs> so, so as soon as um, Galileo returned strong evidence for an ocean in Europa, mm -hmm. at, that at that time people were already thinking about some kind of mission to return. Right. And people have talked about orbiting Europa. Uh -huh. um, 
and landing on Europa. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the main concept for exploring Europa that's uh, discussed in the previous decadal survey, the study mm -hmm. that NASA roughly follows in, in planning its, its, its spacecraft mission. So that decadal survey from 2013 mm -hmm. uh, discussed a Europa orbiter. Right. So. so this is uh, a mission to the Jupiter system and focusing on Europa, yeah. the main, uh, one of the interesting moons, uh, one of the many in the solar system. You mentioned Galileo, it's one of the earlier programs that went to Jupiter. Yeah. Uh, which other spacecraft, earlier missions to Jupiter, currently JUICE, have informed the kind of questions that Europa will focus on? Uh, yeah, addressing? well, um, so Galileo is the main one, mm -hmm. but even before Galileo, uh, the Voyager, the two mm -hmm. Voyager spacecraft that NASA uh, sent to explore the entire outer solar system mm -hmm. uh, on what was called the Grand Tour, uh, <laughs> right? They flew through uh, the Jupiter system and um, uh, it just happens that in uh, 1979 um, people realized that there might be a strong tidal interaction between the moons. Right. So prior to the launch, you know, there are press uh, graphics uh, uh -huh. suggesting that Europa might be the most, the least interesting of the four Galilean satellites. Right. And only just before the arrival at Jupiter uh -huh. was it determined that Io might be volcanic and uh -huh. thus Europa might as well. And um, so it's exciting that Voyager confirmed Io's volcanism right. um, and, and revealed Europa to have an interesting geological surface. So when you say um, volcanism, this is an icy moon. It's not like volcanoes on, uh, on Earth. So what, um, what's the sort of activity, what's the structure of uh, the current understanding of Europa that makes it interesting to go there for this quite interesting mission? Yeah, well, so it might be volcanism like on Earth. Ah. Uh, on Earth, a lot of the volcanism that happens is under the, under the ocean, in the seafloor. Right. Uh, yeah. And that kind of volcanism yeah. uh, creates sea mounts. Uh -huh. uh, it creates the, the Hawaiian Islands, for example. Mm. Um, and, um, and it creates vigorous hydrothermal systems right. uh, where life can exist independent from photosynthetic life on Earth's surface. Uh -huh. Uh, so that's all very intriguing, uh, given that Io is volcanically active, perhaps Europa also has volcanoes. But you, make, you, you also make a good point that what we see of Europa's surface is all ice. Mm -hmm. And our best picture of Europa is a geologically active ice shell right. itself of an intrinsic interest, you know, globally fractured, ostensibly continuously fracturing, and so we hope that we might see active geology when we get there. Mm -hmm. um, and the ice is only perhaps as thin as 30, as three kilometers, but it could be as thick as 50. Mm. And so, um, in either, either of those scenarios, there's a good chance that Europa Clipper's radar can see through the ice and determine how thick the ice is to see the boundary between the ice and the ocean. Now, one of the interesting um, observations from Voyager was Io. Now, that really was a volcanic eruption that was the first ever detected yeah. beyond Earth. So the two worlds, Io and Europa, are quite different. That's right, that's right. Uh, and I you know it's worth emphasizing that Io is more volcanically active than Earth. Mm -hmm. So it's oh, the most right. volcanically <laughs> active body in the solar system. Right. Um, something like two watts per meter squared of heat coming out of the surface. Uh, and um, yeah, so, in, in, it's, so it's estimated it's about a factor of 10 right. as much heat at Io as at Europa. Um, but the details really need to be determined. Um, and um, you know, so they, they are very different worlds, mm. but they probably formed together at the time that Jupiter formed. Right. And um, Io 
Europa and Ganymede, at least, are involved in this intricate dance mm -hmm. where they have um, a harmonized orbits. Right. So yeah. for every one orbit of Europa, I orbits twice. Uh, and this, this, was, this isn't by chance. They, they've exchanged angular momentum. They've been tugging on each other. Right. And so they, they shepherd each other in their orbits. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that um, their eccentricities may have changed through time. Um, and they might exchange eccentricity. So sometimes uh, Europa might be more tidally dissipated than it is currently or less. Uh, and similarly, Io may go through periods of more intense and less intense activity. So chemically, um, Europa is perhaps the, the, attra the attraction it has and why NASA is going there with the Europa Clipper program is that there's water. Now, um, how much water is there? Where is it? And uh, um, a bit like Enceladus, are there any plumes that you've observed so far? Plumes from, from Io? Uh, from uh, Europa. Sorry, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, so there, there is tentative evidence of, of plumes from Europa. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in fact, um, there was pretty compelling evidence uh, returned from um, some Hubble observations in 2012, right. around 2012 and 2013. Uh -huh. um, uh, those have not been repeated, and so it seems that if there are plumes, um, they are not happening all the time. Right. Yeah. So if there are plumes, then obviously there's some sort of a break in the crusts to allow this water. And uh, that would be um, interesting. Well, has, have any breaks in the ice crust been detected so far? Well, okay, so, so even without plumes, um, it's notable that um, the linear features crisscrossing the entirety of Europa's surface, mm -hmm. uh, many of them have this double ridged aspect, um, which uh, might be explained by periodic opening and closing of fractures on the surface. Right. And so those fractures might reveal warm ice from below. Mm -hmm. And so, so one vision for that is that the warm ice is extruded a little bit with each opening. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when, when the closure happens, that warm ice is pushed up and, and builds a little bit of the ridge. Mm -hmm. And so over thousands of cycles, you can build up a ridge that's you know hundreds of meters high and kilometers across. Um, so none of that attests to direct communication of the ocean with the surface. But similarly, um, plumes that, that were observed by Hubble, uh, and it might have been happening at the time that Galileo was there, there's some evidence for that, um, they wouldn't be directly communicating with the ocean. Instead, instead the ice the ice probably churns about either through double diffusive or sorry, through convection, right. convection in the ice, mm -hmm. um, uh, or, or through other geological processes in the ice. You might end up moving materials from the ocean toward the surface. Mm -hmm. yep. So there's going to be um, um, quite a few instruments on board Europa. Yep. You just run us through. The, the, the complete payload set and then focus on some of the more interesting from an astrobiologist point of view uh, payloads that you Sure, so, so I, I like the way you frame that. Um, I, I'm happy to highlight the instruments. I, I want to emphasize they all work together. Right. And so the overall goal to understand Europa's habitability is only met through the combination ah. of the instruments. Yep. Uh, but um, mm -hmm. the way we describe it is, you know, there's a remote sensing suite of instruments. So multiple cameras mm -hmm. um, from the ultraviolet um, out to the, the radio. Mm -hmm. um, so we have an ultraviolet, ultraviolet instrument, two visible cameras, uh, a near-infrared camera, which is important for mapping uh -huh. um, uh, absorption features for, for organics, right. uh, important for life, for looking for biosignatures. Um, a thermal instrument that will allow us uh, in, in the, the more the, the mid-infrared um, to be able to look at the heat signatures, even including from plumes, right. uh, but also from other kinds of 
of activity. Uh, and then again, the, the radar instrument that can peer through the ice. Uh, so along with those instruments, um, there's an in-situ suite. Mm. And so the in-situ suite of instruments consists of two mass spectrometers, a right. uh, gas mass spectrometer called mass specs mm -hmm. um, that will be able to take gases from the atmosphere of Europa and from plumes and detect in detail their composition. For example, the presence of methane um, and oxygen ratios of CO2 to oxygen, things that were really important for figuring out the pH of the ocean of Enceladus. Similar investigations might be undertaken um, at Europa. And so the other mass spectrometer is a dust detector. And so you can imagine dust particles, tiny uh, mi microscopic dust particles, nanograins, um, being ejected from Europa's surface, either by radiation or meteor impacts or mm -hmm. by plumes mm -hmm. um, and so the dust analyzer can sample those right. uh, and uh, and similarly can look for salts and organic materials that are on the surface and by mapping the distribution of those features uh -huh. um, can correlate those with geological features on the surface so mm -hmm. if we if we can identify a feature a geological feature as being relatively recent uh -huh. uh, and perhaps even find a thermal signature of that activity uh -huh. and look at its organic content then we have strong evidence for uh, material from the ocean uh, and possibly material that provides hints of even life. Um, uh, yeah, so we can constrain possible metabolism uh, and possibly presence of materials indicative of life. So, it's, so, so but I, I can finish the instrumentation uh, just real mm. quick. Um, I, I don't want to underemphasize the other two, the three uh, remote sensing instruments, uh, which are the um, the magnetometer and the plasma instrument, those work together to, to characterize the magnetic field around Europa. And it's the magnetic field that can tell us where the ocean is, uh, how electrically conductive it is, uh -huh. and thus what the salinity is. Uh, and then the, the um, the gravity and radio science instrument, which is basically an experiment looking at the Doppler shift of, uh -huh. of radio waves, mm -hmm. um, can tell us the interior structure and the density structure. And that's how we figure out if Europa has a, has a metallic core right. and possibly if Europa's interior is volcanically active. It's a fascinating collection of instruments. Yeah. And as you say, it's the combination of the data that will give you the most powerful uh, understanding of the structure and chemical constituents. One, one of the things you said there was uh, in situ measurements and in situ measurements to me is, is one of the uh, most uh, fascinating developments in recent technology because now you can actually go there and taste and smell what's, what's yeah. in the atmosphere or, or from the plumes of uh, Europa. In order to do that, you're going to have to get pretty close to Enceladus. Uh, in uh, uh, Europe. <laughs> <To> Europe. <laughs> yeah, uh, it would be nice to get close to Enceladus as well, um, <laughs> but not, not for this mission. Right. Um, uh, yeah, certainly. And so, um, you know, it, it's worth emphasizing that the Europa Clipper mission is not an orbiter, and so we won't, we won't always be close to the surface. Right. However, mm. um, by having multiple flybys, right. the mission can be constructed in a way that we fly as close as 25 kilometers to the surface, possibly even closer. Wow. So you couldn't do that if Europa had an atmosphere, uh, because the atmosphere would, would slow down the spacecraft. So we're going to get really, really, really close to the surface. Yeah. And, and this is the um, one of the incredible things about doing this uh, kind of um, ex investigation for the first time. You don't really know how close you can get to the surface of um, Europa, um, what plumes there might be, and if you are getting very close, there will be potential risk to the spacecraft if there are particles which are. Uh, yeah. So, so the Cassini 
investigation of Enceladus um, was also careful in its investigation of the plumes and only late in the in the mission did they fly directly through the plumes uh, at a really low altitude mm -hmm. but um, they determined that it was safe to do so yeah. and the, the, the suite of instruments and the spacecraft are designed to tolerate those conditions a plume sounds like a, a really dangerous environment like walking through a waterfall right. but really it's, 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 it's a diffuse spray it's like more like walking through an aerosol cloud from hairspray say right. um, and so so not not that not not that much of a problem. Um, there's another danger aspect in, in terms of getting that close to the surface. Um, you know, the the um, propulsion engineers work very hard to design the trajectory uh, based on assumptions of Europa's gravitational field, and um, so they have to make small corrections in the trajectory during during the course of the trajectory, uh, including accounting for re revisions of Europa's shape. So as we as we as we use the radio science suite to get Europa's gravity data, and as we map the surface with our cameras, those in, those engineers will be able to refine the trajectory, which will allow us to more safely get close to the surface. So it's a, it's a really complicated, uh, intensive um, bit of work. And that's another uh, incredible, in my eyes, um, capability that not only especially NASA but other space agencies have developed in navigation, and it's so incredibly high precision and small tolerances that they can work to these days. Um, so you, you highlighted that um, Europa is going to be, uh, the mission Europa is going to be orbiting Saturn, not Europa itself. Jupiter. <laughs> Thank you. A, a, lot of, a lot of us have, have, have Saturn and Enceladus on the brain. I, yeah. I definitely relate. Definitely and relate. Titan as well. And Titan. Uh, yeah. So um, Europa Clip is going to be orbiting Jupiter, not the moon itself, not yeah. Europa. Um, so which uh, other uh, moons of Jupiter do you anticipate having close flybys off as well? Yeah, so the science focuses on Europa, mm -hmm. um, but as part of the uh, trajectory, part of getting close to Europa, mm -hmm. um, the mission will use uh, flybys of Ganymede and Callisto. We want to stay away from Io because it's, it's deep in the radiation environment of Jupiter, yeah. uh, and so, um, so we will we will have fairly close flybys of, of Ganymede and Callisto. Um, and currently, there are calibration measurements planned, um, but those calibration measurements are um, in, very similar to the measurements we'll be making at Europa. And I'm very hopeful that we'll get some great science from those measurements. Oh, it's going to be terrific science, yeah. and, and I'm sure images as well. Um, so you, you've. Um, uh, we're going to be going to um, uh, tons of instruments, well, quite a few. Yeah. Which one of those instruments, uh, are you associated with any one in particular? Well, uh, I was working uh, with the MassPex instrument for quite a while. Um, my, my job currently is actually um, as, as co-lead for the Habitability Assessment Board. Ah. So this is a group that ensures, works to ensure that um, that all of the measurements are working together right. um, and, um, and that the science team is on top of all the latest astrobiology research. Right. Um, so, so don't ask me to pick a favorite instrument. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I think just as you emphasized earlier, um, the, the end pro product is going to be a combination of the uh, measurements and data that uh, collectively all the instruments will pick up. Um, it's quite a few instruments. What's going to be the size and mass of the spacecraft? Yeah, so um, those are numbers I don't have right at the tip of my tongue. Right. Um, the, I know the, the, the wingspan of the spacecraft is 30 meters. 30, so it's three zero. Be, yeah, three zero. So it's going to be um, quite impressive to look at. Now I'm guessing um, that's mainly the solar panels. It is. It is mainly the solar panels. And it's, um, 
It's something like five meters high. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a tall spacecraft as well. Yeah. So. And, and with all the instrumentation on board, I seem to remember there's something like almost a third of a ton, about 300 kilograms. That's quite a heavy, big, meaty spacecraft. Um, how are you going to launch it? Which uh, launch vehicle are you going to use? So, um, yeah, so the, the launch vehicle, it'll be on a, a, a SpaceX. Right. Um, so uh, Falcon Heavy then, Falcon I guess. Heavy, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Expendable. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so big, and even with that, uh, it's not going to be a direct journey from the Earth to Jupiter. That's right. So there will be two flybys, first of Mars and oh. then of Earth. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, it's intriguing to think of what, what kind of uh, imagery we'll get of Mars right. uh, and, and then of Earth uh, right. on the way to Jupiter. Yeah. And, and these flybys of Earth and Mars are for gravity assist. Yeah. But, so you will be activating all of the instruments at Mars and maybe on the... No, no, so that, that's worth emphasizing. So, um, in fact, most of the instruments, uh, instrument suite will remain dormant prior to arrival at Jupiter. Right. This is both a cost-saving measure and also a safety feature. Um, safety so, for the instruments. Yeah, we want to we want to commission them only as we get close to Jupiter, right. mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and so and that's 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 all in in, in work still. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, right. So uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> What's the duration uh, of the mission planned for Europe? Yeah. So just uh, right. So some of the timeline. Um, right. We're launching in 2024, mm -hmm. and um, and it'll, it'll be about a year cruise right. right so the flybys of Mars and and Earth happen in 20, 2025 and 2026 respectively mm. um, and then we arrive at Jupiter in late uh, 2030 so we'll have some time to, to think a little bit do a little more research mm. uh, which is important because there's a lot more we want, need to understand in terms of fundamental data mm. related to Europa mm. um, so then the the actual after arrival of Jupiter there's about a six-month period of getting into orbit uh, for the main science flybys of Europa. So mm -hmm. we'll begin our science operations in 2031 mm -hmm. uh, and those will continue, the first half of the mission will be I think nine months right. uh, and then we take about a nine month break uh, right. and, and reconfigure the orbit right. um, so that we can investigate the other side of Europa. Right. So for the first half of the mission it's the side of Europa that faces away from Jupiter because Europa is right. fixed and it's in its orientation yeah. relative to Jupiter uh -huh. and the second half of the mission which will resume at the end of that six months mm -hmm. um, will be multiple flybys of the side of Europa that's facing Jupiter you can imagine that's a little more risky mm. um, yeah. and, and as you were saying earlier Jupiter um, is quite a strong um, has a strong electromagnetic emissions yeah. even when you flying between Europa and Jupiter um, I'm sure the engineers made sure it would be safe to do so. Yeah, uh, well, so I think some of the risk from um, the second half of the mission is more about um, uh, being in eclipse, so not having a direct view to Earth ah. for part of the, for part of the right. part of the flyby. Although I don't think that happens very very frequently. Mm. Um, um, so, but but the, the main risks about being close to to Europa are really just being in in the most intense part of Jupiter's radiation environment. Mm -hmm. So the Juno spacecraft currently touring um, currently orbiting Jupiter mm -hmm. has a similar problem. It has a highly elliptical orbit, right. and so it works very hard to stay um, out of the radiation environment close to Jupiter mm -hmm. but even even with those precautions um, you incur some radiation dose and so it's expected mm -hmm. that as the spacecraft ages over those those few years of the investigation 
um, the optics, for example, will degrade. Right. Glasses tend to cloud up under uh -huh. radiation, right. uh, that sort of thing. So it's interesting you mentioned the, the large size of the solar arrays uh, because it's so far away from the sun and the eclipse which might potentially prevent sunlight from getting to the solar arrays. One of the um, uh, options that NASA has used in other space missions, deeper solar space uh, solar system space missions is um, a radioisotope uh, thermal generator yeah. for power supply why was it that uh, an rtg option was not selected for europe yeah um i, I definitely was around for those discussions uh -huh. um i don't know if i want to go into it a whole lot but uh but and, and as you mentioned uh, rtgs would have made the spacecraft a lot um, smaller, lighter, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, easier to maneuver because oh, the, 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 the solar panels are a big lever arm, right? Ah. It's like having, having your arms out while spinning yeah. around. Um, so it's, 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 we're less nimble. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also, in some sense, a green spacecraft. Right. We don't have to worry about our own radiation. We don't have to worry about environmental concerns upon launch. Mm -hmm. And as you might imagine, those environmental concerns incur a cost. And so, so a lot of the, the reluctance to use RTGs was about trying to keep the mission cost low. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, fascinating. I, I'm, I remember the debate, again, <clears throat> uh, I think it was when, um, when Cassini was launched. There was a lot of, uh, um, people, a lot of people from the environmental movement complaining about that. And, and it's, it's nice to see that NASA and other space agencies are considering that option, at least. And yeah, to the, to the extent that we can, it's great to use solar mm. power. I, I do want to emphasize that uh, RTGs and, in general, uh, nuclear power, mm -hmm. I think, would be really exciting for use in space, and in mm. some in some sense, it's one of the safest applications. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a bit of a communication issue, I think, around the safety of the nuclear fuel. As I understand it, the fuel pellets themselves are, are pretty robust. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and and in, inter interestingly, um, Apollo 13, uh, when it came back, uh, the um, service module ended up in the. <coughs> Uh, Pacific Ocean, which had one of these RTGs in there, and you know it was uh, didn't con cause any damage or concerns. But as soon as you say um, radioisotopes or nuclear source of energy, people yeah. do tend to draw their own conclusion very quickly first, yeah. and then think about what it actually means. So good to see that that's taking place uh, in NASA in their considerations, as well as yeah. the pollution from. Um, the um, uh, propellants in rocket fuel, which is fascinating. Well, if I, if I can make a plug for a book related oh, to your please, book, yeah. uh, so David W. Brown is an author, uh -huh. uh, a, a science writer. Uh -huh. He has a really compelling story uh, in a book called The Mission. Mm -hmm. um, it really chronicles a lot of the people who, who were involved in the, getting Europa Clipper going. Right. It includes a discussion about, about the, the choice of, of, nucle of nuclear versus solar, uh -huh. uh, including some of the, the, the politics around, um, around Cassini mm -hmm. and uh, uh, sort of a notorious 60 Minutes interview right. that, that changed a lot of public perception about, about nuclear. Okay, so um, we've got a couple of years to wait before launch, then a couple of flybys of Earth and Mars, and then about 2030 it arrives. It's going to be very exciting during the mission, but just in closing, uh, what's the plan for end of life? Cassini had a very spectacular downfall. What's uh, in the plans for Europa? Yeah, um, so that hasn't been that hasn't been fully determined yet. Right. Um, it would be exciting to um, to crash into Ganymede um, mm. if we're able to do that. Um, 
the uh, I, I'll emphasize that we're we're very careful to avoid crashing into Europa. It's an abundance of caution. Uh -huh. uh, planetary protection requirements might allow us to do that, mm -hmm. but um, we, we couldn't necessarily guarantee that we wouldn't get material into Europa's ocean on a time scale of about 10,000 years. So it's safest um, to to instead crash somewhere else. Yeah. It must be. Uh, um, I mean. I'm sure with all spacecraft, all space agencies take the utmost care in terms of um, um, decontamination prior to launch, but nevertheless there's that small possibility and that's why you make sure that it doesn't crash on. Yep, yeah, and I mentioned earlier the, the care that the propulsion engineers, the, space, the trajectory design engineers take in allowing us to get close to the surface. And some of that is just to make sure that with every small maneuver, uh, adjustment of the trajectory, uh, we have uh, minimal risk of hitting Europa. And so uh, understanding the gravity environment will be very important. So it's about uh, eight years before it arrives in Jupiter. I'm assuming you'll still be associated with the program? That's that I plan to be, yes. <laughs> well, we'll check in with you again then, hopefully. Well, that sounds nice, yeah. And uh, Dr. Stephen Vance, thank you very much indeed. Appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you as well.